from Headstuff Studios in Dublin. Welcome to Mother Folklore, a podcast about words, Irish, Irish words, and words from Ireland. I am Tara Cochet. And I'm Gary McAvoy. It's great to be back in Dublin, isn't it? Yeah, I love Dublin. <laughs> Hooray for Dublin. <laughs> oh, it's class. <laughs> so, um, as, as we know, there's a bit of a referendum going on at the moment. Is there? What? Yeah. I know, I heard about it. Yeah, I'm not sure what you're talking about. What I referendum? Heard, I heard about it online. A, a Russian fellow with an eight-digit Twitter account told me there's a referendum happening. Ah, I'm sure he was very interesting about it. it. It's alarming. Some of the commentary appears to show a very a limited knowledge of Ireland. For example, one person was said commenting, possibly an American, who knows, said that if we, if they take our Eighth Amendment, they'll come after our Second Amendment next. Oh no, our Second Amendment. What the hell is our Second Amendment, Dara? Our Second Do Amendment tell. is... And this is what, what struck me. It is an omnibus proposal covering a range of disparate articles aimed at tidying up the Constitution in light of the experience since its enactment. And is tidying a legal term? Um, yeah, sure. Let's go with it. Let's go with mm. that. It wasn't just an absolute mess when they brought it in 1936. A little bit panicky because of the abdication. And then they needed to clean it up several years later. <laughs> yeah, I consider it. My, it's my personal opinion that we. it's good that we don't have an amendment protecting gun ownership. And having to <laughs> deal with it and things like that. Treading but, very carefully because I know the response that one will get. Okay. Um, yes, I also think so. I think it doesn't appear in very many legal texts um, worldwide. You can Google search where it does appear, mm. but it's not really a, a common occurrence in, in legal texts. The reason I bring all this up is that some people have said, you know, and rather than repealing the Eighth Amendment, they were talking about repealing the Eighth Article. Or Article 8. Repealing Article 8. And I would be vehemently on the no side of that campaign. (laughs) Um, Love both. No. 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 (laughs) Never. (laughs) Never. But basically, Article 8 is a very interesting one in Ireland because it is the one that protects or is the one that states that the Irish language is the first language of the Republic. Yeah, the Irish language is the national and first official language of the country of era, commonly known as the Republic of Ireland. Yes, indeed. And Tianga Nashunta August and Free of Tianga. Yeah. And the second language, what is recognised as second language, is? Is English. Or Soxverla. Soxverla, um, which I think is fantastic. So what Soxverla translates to, if you look at the construction of the word Berla, it means mouth speak. So bale, raw, is mm. bail being your mouth and raw is kind of a, a form of to say something. Yeah. Um, because English is very much, it exists in your mouth alone, whereas Irish is all, <sighs> it's all back there. It's like Arabic. <laughs> yeah, it's lovely, um, depending on your canon. But there is a little bit more. It extends beyond your, your, your mouth. You know, there's a lot of guttural sounds in Irish. Mm. So English was, was called bail uh, raw or berla and Soxverla is translates to Saxon mouth speak so it was a little snide remark that presumably Dev I want to hope that it was Dev that stood mm-hmm. it in there shove your English your dirty Saxons your mouth speak um, <laughs> and what I particularly like about um, I think it's a it is it's part two of um, article 8 it's article 8.2 that in English it says um, uh, the English language is recognised as the second official language but in Irish it says so Glachter is more like it's accepted or mm. like we'll put up with it. Um, <laughs> Miholo Caril has, uh, which I've slated his book before, but I've also like said it's fantastic. It's, I like, sec- it's like Riverdale for you. I secretly love it. Like. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, I secretly also love Riverdale. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is so bad. Why can't I stop watching? I know, they're all so attractive. Why is there always a musical number? <laughs> um, but so if you read that that particular um, entry, it talks about Glockter and how it's more like accepting rather than recognizing on an official level. Um, so it's, again, an opportunity for presumably Dev, who wasn't very pro-English, um, to slag off uh, the Brits. They did try and kill him. Who did? The Brits. Oh, sorry. <laughs> the, the drafters there. <laughs> There's something I don't know. Yeah, they did. Yeah, they did. They mm. did try. I presu- presumably he has justified hatred for, for the Brits or dislike. I don't know if it was hatred. It probably was, though. Mm. Um, Dev is my boy, though. We'll never know if it's true that he broke out of prison dressed as a woman. I want it to be true, but it was in that terrible movie that also blamed him for Michael Collins' death, which I won't speak about. That's a, 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 a subject for another day. That's another day's episode. But no, we'll get back to good old Article 8. And there's actually a, um, yes, there's a third provision in Article 8, which um, is? is um, yeah, provision may be made by law for the exclusion of either of said languages for any one or more official purposes, either throughout the, um, the state or in any part thereof. Um, and that particular provision has been used throughout the courts, um, not so much in recent times, um, would have been more in the 60s and 70s, to effectively nullify the right to have Irish and to have mm. Irish used. Not to, to speak it, but to have it used in official capacity. Um, so this has been has been used, I think, I would argue, inappropriately to nullify the the existence of Irish and nullify the um, right to use Irish officially. One of the uses, one of the reasons it's been suggested is that sometimes in order to have a very careful translation of legislation, there can be a temporary period where an English version or an Irish version of some legislation doesn't exist. But it's been interpreted more broadly than that. Yeah. Um, and... It's it's a little bit frustrating because there is a duty. I mean, it is um, in the constitution there is a duty to bring in the um, legislation into official languages, and that the president um, Miguelde can sign in either language um, a bill into existence. However, the reality is that the majority of of um, pieces of legislation, unless they're going to be problematic pieces of legislation, um, mm-hmm. such as a particular bill that's up and coming around about the 26th of May, I hope, um, I'd imagine that those ba- bills would be put into Irish because they there is a problematic element that people will be looking for flaws. Mm-hmm. But if it's a, a, an act to talk about, I don't know, fixing potholes, probably won't be available in Irish until there is a problematic element to it. And in fairness to the Ranog and Astrakhan, they have been working hard. Um, and I, I believe that they're, you know, understaffed, underfunded, that sort of thing. So there is yes. a difficulty element there. And they have been uh, doing some great work. But there are still... Um, Irish language legislation is an afterthought um, which is frustrating and it's quite interesting we had our own case um, a couple of years ago discussing this and there was a a case in Canada it's the Manitoba languages case Mm -hmm. and it's so interesting because this guy I can't remember what, what the crime was but he decided to take a court case to say that he couldn't be found guilty of whatever crime it was because the legislation wasn't translated into French because they have two official languages there and there hadn't been a translation of a, of a piece of legislation in the Manitoba area mm. for like maybe 90 years, maybe more. It was a long period of time. And the assumption was the courts were going to be like, error, it's grand. You don't mm. need to translate everything. But the courts were like, no, you got to go back and you got to translate absolutely every piece of legislation. And here's your time limit. Get to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of us hoped that that would be the result in our particular Irish case, but it wasn't. And it, there tends to be a little bit more of a lax attitude now. 
When I was in UCD, there was a big uh, copy of the uh, Declaration of Human, the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights on the wall, and I used to look at it sometimes when I was waiting to meet somebody. Um, and then I, one of the provisions I always remember seeing was that you can't be found guilty of a law that didn't exist when you committed it. And could that actually be interpreted for legislation? Could it be that, say, if you're not allowed, wear Zagabonks in an, a bus queue, <laughs> but it hasn't been translated yet, but you have actually done the thing? I mean, hasn't, doesn't the idea exist in a beyond language way? Um, yeah, it does. And that, that has been argued um, successfully, I believe. I think you have to assert your right in Irish. Um, and it's been a while since I've, I've looked at it, but you have to, you can't be like, I know there has been a, a, a court case where like, a Polish guy was like, oh, the Road Traffic Act isn't translated into Irish, but I don't speak Irish, lol. Like, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't think that succeeded. But is, um, is this like demanding a kind of a, a, a snifter of brandy in your, in your Trinity exams? <laughs> Sorry, what? <laughs> Apparently back in the old days that if you were sitting, um, if you're sitting final exams in Trinity College in the University of Dublin, you were entitled to a, a snifter of brandy or it's maybe just a glass of brandy. And when one person <laughs> demanded this, they were told actually that there's underneath that section of the Trinity Charter, a person has to carry their sword with them in their exam. <laughs> so, Derek, I love the way you say things and you look around the room and you're like, yeah, that's common knowledge. And everyone else <laughs> is like, what? <laughs> no idea what you're talking about. I'm telling you. But yeah, I guess it's a little bit like supposedly supposing to have your sword with you in an exam. Sure. <laughs> See, mm-hmm. That's what it's like. So yeah, I mean, it's common decency to only insist on, on the protection of the Irish language if you speak it. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think that was the, um, they were having none of your, your shenanigans if you actually don't speak it. Um, so there is, you do have a right to be prosecuted mm-hmm. in theory in a language that you speak and that if you speak one of the, the chosen languages, um, particularly with Irish and some judges would vary on it and some judges were fantastic. Um, um, but it is often very difficult. And I know Justice Hardiman in 2011, Justice Hardiman died um, two or three years ago and he was a great asset for the Irish language. Um, yes. He died in two, uh, a couple of years ago, but in 2011 he said that um, uh, effectively that you know, you'd want to be a really strong character to actually go out of your way and use Irish in your official business because not only would you fear causing embarrassment to the official, you'd, you you know, annoy the officials mm-hmm. and it would take you so much longer that you're better off using English. And that is, unfortunately, um, I'd imagine the case. And I'd also imagine that there's very few people left who can only speak Irish and can't do their official business in English. Um, so... While there is technically, you know, if you if you don't, if the Road Traffic Act hasn't been, which has been, there was, a, a, I keep mentioning the Road Traffic Act because there was an issue with the Road Traffic Act yes. not being translated into Irish. Um, it subsequently has been. But if there was an issue with a um, uh, piece of legislation not being translated, you know, technically you do have a right, but is it actually worth going all the way to the Supreme Court with for speeding ticket that you're probably going to be landed with mm-hmm. in the end? And this is it. So it can be kind of a kitchen sink defense. It's not something, it's something that you often go only use in a big deal, which is why I suppose we tend to only hear about in these very extreme examples. Yeah. Which creates the impression that there's something flippant about it in serious times. Yeah. Which is a very unfair impression. Yeah. And I've, I mean, <laughs> I, I'm cautious in what I'm saying because I'm effectively <laughs> like nullifying my entire research. <laughs> no. <laughs> but that's not the case. No. So, mm. um, yeah, there is something, you know, you really have to be. Even me, who's somebody who has, you know, pursued a legal education in Irish and, and lives for for um, language rights, if I got arrested in the morning 
I feel like I remember getting pulled over for um, when I was is it past the statute of limitations it is <laughs> I was anyway I was driving with uh, with L plates and no additional driver um, <gasps> yeah I'm, and I was getting breathalyzed and mm. the guards with me were obviously like look you're not really supposed to be driving on your own but on the circumstances they were like don't do it again um, so thank you for the guards and I remember mm. rolling down my window being like English or Irish pick one now and stick with it and then I was like don't be that person don't be that girl he's like mm, <laughs> um, because then I was going to get um, you know dragged off to Portleaf mm-hmm. Station which didn't happen the guard was very nice and I didn't need to resort to Irish that's good so uh, I think there's um, you can get these um, slips for your tax insurance to have you're looking well guard <laughs> <laughs> So good old good old Article Eight is in there. And then the between Articles four and eleven refer to the mm. state and yeah. largely people's individual relationship with the state. And then yeah. they, they get in more as you get deeper into the constitution, yeah, you get, get more, more into government and things yeah. like that. But there was something in the next article, which is Article Nine, which, you know, isn't terribly interesting or urgent in general. It it typically refers to provisions relating to the the tra- transfer between the free state and the republic. Yeah. But there was a point that I th- wanted to bring up, which is Article 9.3, which is no person may be excluded from Irish nationality and citizenship by reason of the sex of such person. And that seems fair enough. But what struck me as interesting was that the Irish language version is Nikad Nashuntacht August Serontacht Aaron Achelt Erdena Erbe Tusker Ferran No Tusker Vanan Antanashin, which would translate more literally as not because of the reason of sex, but because whether they're male or female. Yeah. And it occurred to me, could this possibly exclude non-binary people? Um, in theory, possibly, but in practice, I'd imagine not. So in that, in theory, that particular article alone, sure. It, I mean, it, because of its wording, so it says no person may be excluded rather than a person who is not, I don't know, male or female may be excluded. That mm-hmm. is a positive affirmation that those people have to be excluded. But because it's a negative you know, wording, um, possibly not. And then we have protections for, you know, equal right to equal mm. rights for people. So I'd imagine like that, that the purpose of that particular article, when, you, you, when you're interpreting laws, there's different ways of doing it. And mm. one of them is looking at the intent yeah. and the intent of this was not to exclude people um, because of gender. It was more yes. to include people in Northern Ireland who identified as, as being, um, uh, or, uh, to include people after the, the free state Um uh, who identified as Irish from being Irish citizens. Um, so I'd, I'd imagine mm. that, sure, in theory, but if you brought in a piece of legislation that says no non-binary people or trans people can be citizens, that would violate all sorts of human rights um, beyond the Constitution and then our Constitution's um, guarantee of, of freedom mm. and equality itself. So some mean-spirited person was to cherry-pick this line out of the Constitution, outside the context of the broader article on the broader Constitution itself, they would be extremely scurrilous. Yeah, and they, I mean, it'd be nonsense because the Constitution has to be read as a whole. You have to read the document as an entirety. So, mm-hmm. I mean, fine, go away, do it yourself. But like, mm-hmm. you're going to, you're not going to get very far with that. Yeah, waste a few thousand taking your, <laughs> your useless case to the Supreme Court. Yeah. More than a few thousand. <laughs> I'd say, yeah, it's, more, it's yeah, quite a bit more a than few a few dozen thousand. thousand yes. We'll be right back after this break. Take a moment to hear about another show on the Headstuff Podcast Network. 
Hi, I'm Marcus O'Lara. And I'm Taz Kelleher. And together, we've made a podcast for people who say they don't have time to listen to podcasts. It's called In the Shower with Taz and Marcus because you're supposed to listen to it when you're in the shower. 15 minutes of your day uninterrupted, you're washing your sexy body, listening to us answer the mysteries of the world. Listeners send in questions that they've always wondered the answer to, but never quite went as far as typing into Google what that mythical question's answer is. Have you ever wondered how much wood a woodchuck would chuck if a woodchuck could chuck wood? Or if there's a correct way to wipe your bum? Or why the hell humans fall in love or kiss? Why do we never see baby pigeons? And loads more. We answer these questions. We expand your mind while you wash your behind. So subscribe now and make sure you tell all your friends. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts and they come out on Monday morning at 6am, no later, just in time for your Monday morning shower. And in the meantime, keep keep scrubbing. scrubbing. a, uh, a German friend of mine some years back was talking about how the European Union and certain states, such as um, Great Britain or the United Kingdom, having whether they have constitutions or not. And my German friend just said, a constitution just means that you can sue the state. Yeah, that's arguably true. And there's a terminology used in a lot of European directives legislation is that something has a legal personality. Yeah. Which I think, oh, legal personality, that means like the Ali McBeal or something. No. (laughs) But no. But when we refer to the constitution, we're obviously referring to a written constitution, Mm. which we, the Republic of Ireland, have. But our neighbours, our nearest neighbours in the United Kingdom. They do not. They do Um, not have. And they have constitutional law. I think it's important to note that that, I mean, a British scholar would probably argue with me in saying that, oh, we do have a constitution. That was a terrible English (laughs) (laughs) We have a constitution, we have. (laughs) You got one, Governor. <laughs> Come back, Mary Poppins, or love you. But I'm sorry. <laughs> I apologise to any British people listening. Um, but uh, yeah, they they would probably argue that they do have a constitution, and there is obviously constitutional law and laws mm-hmm. that relate to the constitution. But they don't have a written constitution to debate and to pour over and to interpret like we do. Um, so it's different in that sense, and arguably a little strange, and it, probably because it's such an old country, and mm-hmm. you know, I mean. Majority of of countries with with constitutions or or, or countries that that have constitutions are they're they're newer, yeah. um, they're say former monarchies or new republics or relatively new republics, and their constitutions come from then. And you know the the less problematic the constitution, arguably the newer the constitution. Mm. Um, although we've got a great one, I've said before that myself and Dan are kindred spirits, and I love that document <laughs> just as much as she does. Um, but uh, yeah, so they don't technically have a written constitution in, in Britain. But they have constitutional law and elements of a constitution in their their laws. So wouldn't this mean that um, that English actually isn't an official language of the UK? Um, as far as I'm aware, and somebody correct me if I'm wrong, on a constitutional level, there isn't technically an official language in Britain. Mm. Um, in they have the Welsh Language Act in Wales. They have a Scottish Gaelic um, Act in in Scotland. Quite recent, actually, and it's quite good. And then they have all of that lovely problematic nature up in Northern Ireland about the Irish Language Act. Um, so uh, I suppose countries without an official language, it's because there's no problem. So mm-hmm. there's no reason to make English an official language in the UK because everybody speaks English. Why would you bother? You yes. know. So it isn't a problematic element. So that's arguably why there isn't even a discussion. Like in America, for example, there's no official language because everybody speaks English. So. Yes. 
I mean, what does it matter? Um, uh, so that's really where the... And the movement to make English an official language of the United States is generally driven by... by you can say uh, it, uh, racism. Uh, yes, <laughs> racism. Yeah, and it's traditionally always been... I, I remember reading back as far as um, during the Second World War, there was a fear that, you know, Germans would take over and to, to outlaw German and to make it an official language. So the, the, a movement to official officialize English in, in the United States uh, rears its, I would say, ugly head um, when, you know, racist tensions build up and, and people will say things like, oh, this is an English speaking country. Mm-hmm. Is it, though, you don't really have an official language and it's a multicultural speaking mm-hmm. country, arguably in some parts, you know, Spanish is, is more frequently spoken than English, but... Hmm. I digress. But the important thing, I suppose, is getting back to the fact that our neighbours in the United Kingdom, it, it is a country of several languages. Yeah. It is a country, it has a, is a rich, varied linguistic history. Mm-hmm. And sometimes what's happened a bit recently, and I, I generally do ve- try to veer away from some of the the, the classic, the, the more, more predictable Irish language topics, but there is an issue... Uh, that won't go away with an Irish language act in the in Northern Ireland and mm. the issue of the of Irish in the north. If they do, if an act does happen, if if things do happen, would they? What would they do differently? But um, tell, can you tell us more about? That? Yeah, um, I actually wrote a paper about this recently. It's a really interesting issue, and um, I think, like you said, it's. Like bringing in an Irish language act doesn't change anything. You need to change opinions. And that's, I would say um, that that's what's holding back an Irish language act coming in because for so many people and to an extent, justifiably, Irish represents something that has caused them great pain in their lives. Mm -hmm. And um, to quote our orange-faced friends, there's been um, good people on both sides and bad people on both sides. Mm-hmm. Um, so for some people, Irish is inherently connected to that. And perhaps it's a generational thing and it will, you know, you know, die away with, with, with the passing of time. I don't know, but uh, there needs to be possibly more done. And I think on, on Dram Diarag have do fantastic work. Um, and I, I totally support an Irish language act, but... Um, Attitudes needs to change, need to change, um, mm. and that hasn't happened yet. So I, I mean, I would love to see an Irish language act coming in, but I can't see even if it does come in, it's going to be rife with with problems, and and um, uh, it's not coming away anytime soon. That's for sure. For somebody who's interested in language law, though, it's a really interesting time. Yeah, <laughs> it's never in the news. Mm. It's so interesting. <laughs> it is, and I suppose it'll be interesting to see. I suppose if they actually want to create something that's good enough for other people to copy, the way the Good Friday yeah. Agreement was. Yeah. Somehow, I doubt that. <laughs> Good enough to copy. Before we wrap up, just while we're talking about official languages and you know, and their context and so forth, there is um, it's it's something that I've been looking at recently. Is that when people are talking to me about hiberno English, they often think of people saying, "Oh, like plumossing someone," mm. and you know, uh, someone being a spalpeen or being a shafford like someone being the shafford of the family and yeah. all these kind of quirky words. But obviously, hiberno English, the way we speak English in this country is, I mean, we don't have an official dictionary of, of Irish English yeah. the way they have one in Canada yeah. for Canadian English, Australian English. And the big issue now is after Brexit, Ireland will be the largest English language uh, or jurisdiction with English as an official language in the European Union, yeah. but not the only one. 
Yeah, that's true. A lot of people have asked me this um, on Twitter after Brexit and um, because of this show that, oh, will Ireland be the only um, English-speaking nation and we're going to get all those sweet European Union jobs. And yes, we are going to get those sweet European Union jobs, I hope, unless a lot of British people have gotten Irish passports. So I'd imagine they're probably staying with them for the most part. Mm. But nevertheless... um, Uh, We're not the only English-speaking nation in Europe. Uh, Malta is also um, an English-speaking nation. And on that, I would actually argue, because of doing full circle and getting back to what we initially started talking about, because of Article 8, I would argue that English isn't technically our official language. Mm -hmm. So I would argue that the only official English-speaking country in uh, Europe is Malta, where over, I think, 80% or 80%, 85, 86% speak English and almost 100% speak, speak Maltese, but most people speak both. And I believe they speak Italian pretty well as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we have similar histories in respect of um, colonization. But uh, yeah, so I would argue that Malta is in fact the only official um, English speaking nation and we are a sort of quasi-official um, mm-hmm. English speaking nation. But then again, um, I perhaps have some bias in that field. <laughs> Um, but yeah, we will be getting some of those jobs. We'll probably have to share a few of them with Maltese, who are mm. sound, very sound people, if you're a Maltese listener. They're decent. Um, yeah. My wife and I went to our honeymoon to Malta. Very nice. Yeah, because we got married lovely. in October and we thought, yeah. well, there's only not many places nearby that are still sunny. Yeah. Zero yeah. that or Australia. Nice, nice. But going back to it, I think that it is important that European Union documents are always written the most awful English language. And now that Ireland will be the largest jurisdiction where English is one of the working languages and it's a wonderful opportunity for us to finally create a dictionary of Irish English or Hiberno-English. I'd love that and I'd love if that became the official European Union language. Can you imagine that? And it should because (laughs) now that once the once the UK are out the the political football issue of who wins the working language debate won't be such a big anymore. It'll be easier for Germany and France and Italy to compromise on Exactly. On it's, English. it's not going to, yeah. Because I think, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I know that was a discussion after Brexit happened, you know, will English be an official language anymore because technically it's not our language. Um, and the answer, and, and I mean, technically in Malta, Maltese, while, while they have co-official status, I believe, I think Maltese takes a, an element of precedence. Um, uh, English is a lingua franca, so it's the working language. And then you're not like favouring, you know, any particular country with your language. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I think uh, it'll be interesting to see from a, a language nerd's point of view. Absolutely. Um, actually, you did mention Justice Hardiman before um, yeah. earlier and before we do wrap up. I just want to say that before he passed away, he had been working on a labour love book called Joyce yeah. in Court, which is all about the actual legal points that are referred to in Joyce's various writings, Joyce's legal interests, as well as some of the legal aspects surrounding the publication of his own books himself. It's yeah. an absolute labour love just as hard when I actually shared an editor and a publishing house. Ah, nice. Have um, you ever met? Did you ever meet? I, him I never had the pleasure of meeting him, but um, but my editor Neil Bellson spoke to him yeah. in the highest terms. Talk about it. it was just such a privilege to be able to work yeah. on this and privilege it. And if you do have an interest in Joyce or in the law or in either yeah. or both, it's well worth getting. And it makes a wonderful gift. Joyce in Court, published by Head of Zeus. And he is a great. He had a great love of the Irish language. He would. Uh, 
work on the moot court competition every year, the Irish language moot court competition every year. I actually mooted in front of him in 2012 and I've never been more terrified in my whole life. Um, he didn't take, pull any punches because we were students. A <laughs> <laughs> uh, lovely man after that fact, but I still wake up in sweats thinking about it sometimes. But yeah, it's a great book as well, I believe. Uh, well worth a read. And his judgments as well are truly poetic. Definitely well worth a read, particularly in Obochin versus Era. Check that one out. Do you want to say it again slowly? Oh, sorry. Omochin versus Era. It's uh, to do with a uh, jury selection in Connemara about the Irish language. And it was actually quoted in his obituary. It was that fantastic. We might have to do a whole episode on that one. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, call me up. <laughs> Great stuff. Okay, so, Gargi, thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you all at home for listening. So it's a slant from me. And a slant from me. See you next time. Hey gang, just so you know, there are still tickets available for the Motherfucklore live show on the 24th of May at 8pm at Smock Alley. Myself and Emer are going to be talking to Aidan Gochlin from Shockton, the Irish language supplement of the Irish Independent, and Terry O'Hagan from UCD. So we'll be talking a little bit of Old Irish with Terry and a little bit of Modern Irish with Aidan. It's going to be a fantastic event. And if you like the podcast, you will probably like our podcast show. It's going to be like that, but more so with that great live interaction. We can't wait and we can't wait to see you. Motherfucker comes out every Friday in the Headstuff Podcast Network. Thanks to Brian for producing, to Kirsten Shield for doing the artwork, and to all of you for listening. If you want to contact the show, you can email us at motherfucklore at headstuff.org or on the Motherfucklore Twitter handle or at directly to me at the Irish Forum. If you're looking for another podcast, listen to the meantime. Headstuff has some other great shows. One topical one at the moment is The Eighth, which deals with the, with the current referendum in great depth, one, one issue at a time. Until the next time, Slán. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Oh, somebody added details to my Wikipedia page. You have a Wikipedia page? Yeah. About you? <laughs> what? <laughs>